also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all, that, all you need, you will abound in every good work, as it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We do thank you, Lord, for your indescribable gift. Please, please stir our hearts, open our eyes, and change our thinking and our behaviour to your glory. Amen. Amen. So a lovely picture on Facebook this week. It was a sign. It was a sign um, on a church in the States. And it just had four words on it. And it said, we love hurting people. And, um, can you see what they were getting at? We love hurting people. But it looks like we love hurting people. Uh, anyway, that's by the by. We're going to look at the ninth commandment, which very simply says, um, you shall not steal. But I want to come at it at a different way. I'm going to think about property, uh, property and theft. But how many ways? So how many ways are there to gain property? You think that one through all wealth or just stuff? How many ways are, to, are there to gain property? I can think of three, but you may throw me out some, give me an idea. Inheritance, yeah, that's an interesting one. Yep, so you've given it, um, work, work for it. Steal it, yeah. You've given it, yeah. Sorry? Won it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can think, I think there are kind of, I think there are three broad categories. Um, and the one that comes up on your, on your um, service notes, your sermon notes, um, is steal. Um, but I wanted us to, to think a little bit about that. I can think uh, there are three ways. One is just you're kind of given it. Um, and that might be, you know, inheritance or it might be a birthday gift um, or it might be something you just, you just stumble across. Uh, you get it for free or you might have won it. Um, the second is that you earn it. Um, you're paid for some kind of work. And I include here you might, you might earn by making something. Uh, you might have a skill and you make something. Or you might trade something. 
Or even you might just find somebody like, you know, I don't know whether you see the trailers for those programs like the, the Australian Outback Opal Hunters and things like that um, on, the, on the TV, have you not seen those? Um, and yeah, I kind of, you could argue that they just find it, but by gum they, they work hard for it and I'm not sure it pays them a decent living. Um, so you're given it or you work for it or you steal it. You take something that doesn't belong to it and, and call it yours. And the reality is this, is that earning it or making it or growing it, next slide, is hard work. Hard work. Work is, is, is always hard. Unless you're one of those really lucky people who's kind of like, um, you know, working essentially what your hobby is. So back in Genesis 3, you see, the Lord says to Adam, because you, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit of the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You will eat food from it all the days of your life. Work is going to be... It's going to be hard from that moment on. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, the Lord says, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. By the sweat of your brow. So work always has, it seems to have this kind of sweat element to it. And so I think we have a fascination with, with being given money for nothing. Think as a society, we have this kind of fascination. So it's like the antiques roadshow approach to life. Someone leaves you something um, that turns out to be valuable. Or the kind of, um, or the Britain's Got Talent approach, something that um, you suddenly discover, you know, you've got a, a talent which, you know, you can do shadow pictures with your toes or something and you, you're, you're famous for 15 minutes um, and... Uh, you know, it kind of pays the bills for six months. We have a fascination for kind of money for nothing, or the National Lottery approach. I'll give a couple of quid a week in the hope um, of, of becoming a, a millionaire. And occasionally things do drop out of the sky in the previous church. Um, somebody left us the best part of a quarter of a million, a person left to the church, which we, person we didn't know. Um, nobody could remember. Um, but that's in the Lord's hand. Um, so sometimes it comes, sometimes it happens out, out of the Lord's hands. But we have this fascination with, with money for nothing. And, and I feel that, Paul. I kind of, it, it struck me, you know, some years ago, I quite like those kind of programs where, the, you know, people get money for nothing. You know, I'd be surprised if it doesn't pull you at some level, somewhere. So while we're thinking this, let's, let's look at the gambling question. Bible doesn't, um, doesn't specifically prohibit gambling anywhere. But if you know something of that pull, then you realize that, that gambling can be dangerously addictive. Like, all, like other activities, it can be addictive. So there is a potentially catastrophic personal cost um, involved if you, if you get involved with gambling and then you can't find a way back out. There is a societal cost in gambling because there is always a proportion of people um, who, who will uh, go too far and will need help in getting out again. And I think, the, I suppose my view to it probably changed when as a teenager I kind of looked at the side of one of those um, you know, machines that flash at you um, in, in the pubs or wherever you are and it's somewhere down the side, I don't know whether it's a legal requirement, it says 71.2% you know, payout. 
or something. Um, that's the whole point, isn't it, about the gambling industry. It's not designed, it's designed to take more money um, than it gives back. And on those machines, it had somewhere specified on the, in the small print, on average, how much money it's going to pay um, back out to you. So the only guaranteed winners uh, in the gambling industry are the bookies and the, and the lottery operators. So I think it's, although the Bible at no point specifically prohibits it, it's not a sensible way to try and earn a living. It's not a sensible way to try and earn money because in the long run, the bookies are always the one who are going to get the money. So you might decide, and here I think is an open question for, for Christians to think about, that you go to somewhere, you know, a village fete, and they have a raffle, and really it's designed to, um, it's just designed to uh, raise money for something. I, um, you might decide that's okay. Or the office might have a sweepstake on the Grand National and it's just sociable um, to be involved. You're not in it for the money. And you're not in it because you think um, you're going to earn your living on it. And you might decide that's acceptable as a Christian. Or you might not. But having knocked that one on the head, let's think about property because that's really what we're here to this morning. And I want to give you two big principles um, about property and then look at a handful uh, of, of smaller um, implications from what that property means. And the first principle is this, the Lord owns everything. The Lord owns, in a very real sense, the Lord owns everything. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. In other words, the earth and everything in it is the Lord's because he created it. That's your first principle. A bit like, you know, you know the Queen owns all the land um, in the UK, te technically. So you may own your house freehold, but if the Queen wanted to, she could, she could take that off you. Which is the whole premise of the first Johnny English film, by the way. Um, that the villain Pascal Sauvage tries to get himself um, crowned king um, so that he can take all the land uh, and make the whole of the UK in into a prison island. The Lord is not Pascal Sauvage, but he does own everything. So behind everything that we have, behind everything that you experience, behind all the people you meet, is this prior gift of God. Only he can bring something out of nothing. So everything comes from him. Everything um, is his gift. Everything is of his making. We find out that it was Jesus who was there at creation. In the beginning was the word, that's Jesus. The word was with God, the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. All the material stuff that we have and all the non-material stuff that we rely on it was an initial gift of God through creation, but it is a continuing gift of God by God's providence. All things hold together in God, Colossians 1 tells us. So all this stuff that we have, you know, you maybe kind of might have a little pile of uh, coins in your pocket. If God wasn't holding that alloy of metal together, it would just go, Phew. all things belong to the Lord. Should God the Son not choose to carry on upholding it, it would cease to exist. 
that's first principle. Second one is this then, that the Lord has made us stewards over his property. The property that we own comes from God. And he gives us a kind of stewardship, ownership of it. And he says this straight away in Genesis 1. Um, as soon as God has created the human race, he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Look after it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So the Lord has created everything and he's given humankind um, stewardship over everything. And so that's true on a global scale. And that means we have to interact with governments and we have to interact uh, with climate change. But on your personal and your, and your family scale, on the scale of your family finances, you're still stewards of creation. In your house, if you, if you own it or even if you, you rent it, you're a steward over a little bit of God's creation. So there's a potential disconnect, I think, that we think these big things, yes, I've heard that Genesis 1 thing, yes, humankind, we're stewards, but this stuff that's in, that's in my house, this stuff that's on my plot, this stuff that's in my garage, is, is, it, it, it's mine, but that would be a mistake. It's yours uh, uh, to steward in the same way that we steward the whole of creation. And part of the reason we, we fall into that is we tempt, we, we, we're tempted to think that we've earned it. So when we think of that thing that you've bought and the, the money you paid off the mortgage, that sweat of your brow, uh, which Adam understood, comes back into your mind and you think, it was my sweat uh, that, that, earned, that earned this. And in a sense we have. If you didn't sweat, um, it wouldn't be there but you have not earned it in independence from God. So the Lord says, I think this is a really interesting verse in Deuteronomy, worth looking up when you get home. Deuteronomy 8, 17. Deuteronomy means second law. It's the time when Moses is recapping the law with Israel before they go into the promised land. And he warns them, he says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. That's important. Remember the Lord, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors. It is that ability that you have to gain wealth, it's given to you by the Lord. And actually... It's part of his covenant relationship with you. Does that mean the Lord promises health and wealth? Let's go off on a second little diversion. Some churches seem to think so, that the, the Lord you know, has, has promised you um, health, good health, uh, and to be very wealthy if you just pray for it and you're obedient to him and ask him for it. And then the implication is that you're not, if you're not healthy or wealthy, you've either sinned or you just don't have enough faith. And the answer is it's not true. It's not true. There's no promise of health and wealth until the Lord comes back and make everything new. When, when Jesus returns and everything's made new and we have heaven on earth, then the bricks will be made out of gemstones. You know? 
Sapphires will be so commonplace that you kind of make pavements out of them. So in this moment, there is no promise of health. There's no absolute promise of wealth. But let's balance that out and not go too far in the other direction. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, the writer of Hebrews says, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we have to hold those things together. There is no promise that you will be healthy all the way through your life. There is no promise that you're going to be wealthy. But there is a promise that the Lord, when you trust him and believe that he exists, he rewards those. What does he reward people with? Or what are they seeking? They're seeking him. So he rewards them with himself primarily. But I don't think that, ex- I don't think that ex- exhausts all the Lord's blessings to you. When you walk with the Lord, things go right which might otherwise not have gone right. Um, So one of my kids came back bemoaning the fact that one of their exams wasn't moderated. In other words, that the teachers didn't look at it and didn't think, oh, this was a really hard exam. Let's kind of like scale all the exam marks. And I was tempted to say, well, the Lord rewards those who earnestly seek him. Things like that which are out of your control go well for you. When you're seeking the Lord, you come back and say, oh, this exam was moderated. And I passed. So that's the framework. All the things that we own are the Lord's and ours. The sweat that we invest is a God-given ability. But what, what are the implications? <clears throat> Four little things for you to do. First thing is be thankful and enjoy it. First thing is be thankful and enjoy it. So when Paul's talking to Timothy, who is left um, in charge of the churches... He says, in later later times, some people will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits um, and things taught by demons. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. It's a really simple principle. The Lord has given you property. He's given you the ability to earn. Just receive it, but with thanksgiving. Give God thanks for it. The the Lord is the silent partner in everything that you own and in everything that you earn and in everything that you do. How do you keep that in mind? Well, 1 Corinthians 5, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Just be thankful. Make a practice of of daily thankfulness. Make sure it's part of your quiet times. Um, Make it more than that if you can. That you just stop and say, thank you, Lord. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Bev Shepard wrote a devotional for um, London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. You might still be able to get it off their website based on that verse, 40 days. Uh, Based on on that verse and looking around it, I found it really, really helpful. Uh, Just a really simple practice. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. And that's the antidote to this disease of, uh, of you thinking that you own everything. First thing, be thankful and enjoy it. Second thing, the Lord um, intends you to be able to give some of it away. Part of the point of earning is so that you can give some of it away. So Ephesians 4, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, 
but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Quite often around churches you, you find people who, who can't hold down a job. And we look after them and we care for them, but it's important that we help them um, find a way um, into a job because that's God's intention. That they should be able to work with their own hands, do something, earn something, that they may have something to share um, with those in need. Part of the point of having wealth is that you can give, it, give some of it away. You can help people who are in need. If you have riches, and on a global scale, that's most of us, then God's been generous to you and expects you to be generous in turn. And the Christian has an additional reason to be generous. And it's interesting, isn't it? This 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And Jesus' riches are are kind of beyond our understanding. I guess you would read Revelation 4 and and, and Revelation 5 and go and see, get an idea of what God's throne room in in heaven is like and and what riches, what glory is there, what, what joy is there. He was equal with God. He was right with God. He had all power and he became poor. came poor and I just struck as we've already said today that I was struck by the level of Jesus poverty Jesus poverty is is that he owns nothing nothing at all at the end of the day not even a set of clothes at the end of the day not even uh, the ability to to move his um, arms and legs at his own volition not even the ability to hold his own body together and somebody sticks a, a, a spear up his side. This is the poverty that, that Jesus has gone through. This is the poverty he was willing to go through for our sakes so that we might become rich. Not monetarily rich. But you, you, you have this. There's this other economics going on, isn't there? There's the monetary economics. There are the, the, the spiritual economics. And in this spiritual economics, you've, um, you are rich. But you've been made right with God, um, the, the creator of the universe. You've been adopted by God as his son or daughter. Being empowered by God, by his, his Holy Spirit living within you, you become rich. But then the scary thing is to realize that Paul is using Jesus. Although he's talking about your spiritual accounts, you become rich. Nevertheless, he says that Jesus, this Jesus, what Jesus has done in the spiritual accounts for you, you go and do monetarily. Um, for other people. In other words, Jesus is the measure of your generosity. That's really clear out of that passage, isn't it? So last week, we asked whether you were a killer or a keeper. 
When you look at your brother and sister, particularly your brothers and sisters in Christ, are you a killer or a keeper? Are you your brother's keeper? Sister's keeper, yes, you are. But when you look at them with hate, then you're looking at them, you're killing them. And today, then, I guess the question is, are you a giver or a grasper? Jesus considered equality with God not a thing to be grasped, in other words, to be held on to. Jesus is our brother, our brother keeper. Last week, today, Jesus is our gift giver, our life giver. And so this is a constant test, isn't it? It's constantly testing your heart. As, as rich people, we are constantly being tested. So we talked about, um, we talked about sex and adultery. We live in a hypersexualized culture where you can't do anything, really, without having um, sex kind of thrown into your face. You can't watch TV, you can't read the papers, you can't go to the cinemas, you can't even walk down the high street without it being um, thrown into your face. And, and without there being a, a, a temptation to look lustfully. But the same is true, although I don't think we realize it. You may be aware of that, though it's, it's so endemic in our culture that, that it's hard. But you may be aware of that, but maybe we're not aware that you're facing the constant temptation with your money too. It's a constant testing of your heart as to whether you're going to be generous. How do you use your house? I think that's one of the real testers. Um, an Englishman's home is, is, is his castle, is what they say, isn't it? Um, in other words, um, English people, I'm just talking about English people primarily, um, go home and they shut everybody else out and they pull up the drawbridge. And I think one of the marks of transformation that the Holy Spirit brings um, is a different use of your house. And so you think about that and you think who are the really holy people in the church? The people who are always the first to be throwing open their doors to other people. Would you be prepared to have a Ukrainian refugee come and stay in your house? What discomfort are you prepared to endure compared to the discomfort Jesus endured for you? So we're in this constant test. Maybe we don't realize it. Paul says to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. Brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. That's what he says. But he says those who want to get rich fall into temptation. Into a trap. And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So hear that again. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Food and clothing, that's enough. Those who want to get rich fall into a trap. Yeah, if you want to get rich, you, Paul says you, you, you're putting your foot in the noose. And where's that noose pulling? It's going to destruction. And I think destruction means you're not going, you're not going to heaven. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, he says, have wandered from the face and pierced themselves with many griefs. If you're working and getting rich, diverts you from the faith. And you end up effectively stabbing yourself 
with lots of grief. So, <clears throat> spiritual economics, the high interest account. We need to be thinking about um, a different kind of <clears throat> accounting. I wonder, tell me what interest you're earning on your savings. Anybody got any savings? And what, what interest, roughly what interest are you earning on them at the moment? One, one percent. Anybody getting more than one percent on their savings? Because if you are, I want to know how you're doing it. Okay. <laughs> it's it's one of those factors of, uh, of inequality, isn't it? That the rich people manage to get more, get higher returns on their on their savings than people who are, who are poor. But but yeah, if you're getting more than one percent on your savings, you you're doing really well. So there's a real temptation, isn't there? We need to build up some kind of nest egg, some kind of savings. We, we need to build, build in some kind of financial security. So we're looking to buy a different house in, uh, in Worcester and then the guy comes along and says, well, what products can I sell you that kind of protect you now? And you have all these um, decisions to make and maybe that's a wise thing to do. But if that's what you're doing, you, you, there's a danger you completely miss the point. That this life is, this is, a, this is a secondary thing. Yes, you've got to, in, in, this, um, in our culture, you're expected to retire at a certain age and you've got to have money to, to provide for your retirement. But there, there is a different account that you at this point in time can be um, investing in. And it's called heaven. So Jesus says this, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Listen, don't. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I don't know whether you realize that all that stuff that you think is really secure, God has a way of getting at. Um, I told you about that money that came to the previous church. We had a real sense uh, of, of, the need, of the need to use it because we felt the Lord kind of pressing this verse uh, upon us. The Lord says, um, if, if I really want to, um, I can get to your finances and, 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 and wipe them out. And if I don't, somebody else might. That thing that you think has made you absolutely secure, a financial crash, um, a war, um, a, a pandemic, um, it is not certain. Might feel certain, but it, it is by no means certain and secure. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's not just about treasure, it's about security. Where your security is, there is where your heart is. And if your security is in your, your nest egg and it's in the bank, then Jesus says, you've missed the point. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy and thieves don't break in and, and, and steal. I don't think we think about this very much. You can now be investing in a different place so that in the new creation, when you get there, you, you'll have, this will come back to you as reward. It will come back to you as, as a greater experience um, of the new creation that is there. You can now 
um, by your obedience to Christ, by your love of other people, by giving stuff away, by being generous, you can, you can establish a, a fund um, in heaven, in the new creation. And this is a clear indication then of what do we really believe? Do you really believe that heaven is coming, that's a new creation? Do you really believe that you can invest in that? And by our actions, a lot of the time say, no, don't really believe that. And listen, this is an account with an eternal return. So this is something that is impossible. So if you put, so I'm putting money into a, a, you know, into a pension. And when the day comes, then I have to buy an annuity. And that will pay me a certain amount of funds over, over a certain length of time. Or you might be putting money in life insurance and that'll pay out, but it'll, it'll only go so far. That fund that you, you have invested in, in heaven, pays out for eternity. Pays out infinitely. So what is going to be, what is going to be better or worth? It, is it going to be better to have 5% more income now or is it better to, to give that away and be generous and for heaven to be 5% better um, for all of eternity? This is what Jesus wants to put in, in, in front of you. No one can serve two masters. They'll either hate one or, and love the other or they'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve. You cannot serve both God and money. So, try and sum up. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This is the way forward. Not to be a grasper but to follow Christ into being givers. Being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was rich, he became poor, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place, made him rich again, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is a giver, not a grasper, and God makes him rich. How about you? Are you a grasper? Are you going to try and make yourself rich, or are you going to be a giver? And let God reward you with greater riches. Let's pray, and then Wilson will sing. Lord, we ask you to imprint on our hearts today whatever it is you want us to take away. Talked about a number of things, and we, we want to be people like Jesus. We want to be people in, investing in the, in the right place. And this thought is really hard. This is where the rubber hits the road. When it comes to how we spend our money, how we use our houses, how we give our time.
And we ask for your grace. Just thank you that if we've fallen short, it is forgiven by that same death of Christ. It is paid for by the poverty of Christ, by the riches he gave up. Thank you if we've fallen short, it is covered. But help us be more like Jesus going forward, we pray. In his name and for his sake. Amen.